Have you ever sold something on eBay? I expect many people here have sold something on eBay. And if you're selling something there, you produce a listing and you make it as clear as you can that what you're selling is worth having. Have you been to see the doctor with an illness? I expect nearly all of us have. And if you've got an illness and you're listening to the doctor, you want the doctor to be as clear as he can about how it can be put right. Well, Christianity has good news. Christianity offers you something worth having, the best offer possible. And Christianity tells us a problem. There's a problem and how it can be put right. And so like the eBay listing and like the doctor, I want to be as clear as I can about this good news. I don't want anyone to leave this morning not being clear what this good news is. More importantly, I don't want anyone to leave without having received what this good news offers. And so we're going to get this good news from a famous verse come up on the screen. It was read to us earlier in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're going to take this verse in four stages. Four stages to hear the Christian good news. First of all, the starting point. And the starting point is God. The verse starts with God. The verse is about God. The verse all depends on God. And you won't get the Christian good news unless you do the same. You need to start with God and you need to depend on God. Not start with yourself and what you think and what you want. You've got to start with God and depend on him. Now, I don't know everyone here. And those who I do know a bit, I don't know everything that goes on in your thoughts, do I? You're probably glad about that. But maybe you're sceptical about God. Are you sceptical about God? Sceptical there is a God. I haven't seen him. Why should I believe in this invisible God? Well, to that, the Bible says two main things. Two main things. Here's the first one. You don't see God, but you do see the world around you. And that is evidence there is a God. By the way, that's in a part of the Bible called Romans chapter 1. You don't see God, but you do see the world around you, and that's evidence there is a God. Let me try to illustrate this in a simple way. Let's have a picture on the screen. Children, have a look at this. What is it? Who can tell us what it is? Go on, Nathan. It's a mousetrap. It's a mousetrap. Now, imagine that you didn't know what that was. Imagine you'd never seen one before. You wondered what this thing is. You came across it on the floor. What's this thing? So you poked it. Ow! It's got your finger. Would you think, well, there we are. That was a strange thing on the floor, but it probably came about by accident. No need to believe anyone designed that. No, surely you wouldn't, because although a mousetrap is not particularly complex, it does have different parts that work together. And it can't come about by chance, because all the parts are needed. No one part will work without all the other parts being in place around it. Now, the natural world is full of far more intricate, complex mechanisms that work together. It can't come about step by step by chance because all parts are needed before it does any good. Evidence of a designer. If you say, well, I can't see this God, the first thing the Bible says to you is, yeah, you don't see him, but you do see the world around you. 
that is evidence of God. Then the second thing the Bible says is, no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. By the way, that's in John's Gospel, chapter 1. No one's seen God, but Jesus has made him known. The Bible contains the accounts of eyewitnesses who saw the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they wrote it down in detail, and it's been passed on to us. And it showed this remarkable man, Jesus, the Christ, was God making himself known. The Bible says God is unseen, but creation and Christ Show him. Well, maybe you believe, well, yeah, there must be a God. Yes, I I believe there must be a designer behind this world. But your belief in God might be a bit like this. Children, do you like to go on holiday? Uh, A fair proportion of the church are away on holiday at the moment. Well, imagine you go on holiday to Cornwall by train. Not the best idea at the moment because it's hard to get a train. But imagine you go on holiday to Cornwall by train and you'll cross over, let's have a picture of it, the Royal Albert Bridge at Tamar. Well, at least if you're going to the south coast. The Royal Albert Bridge at Tamar. Now, as you cross the bridge, I'm sure you will believe that someone designed it. You might even know that he had a strange name, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. It's a strange name. And you might even know he died immediately after it was built. The very year it was built, as soon as it had been built, he died. But that doesn't matter. You can still cross the bridge, can't you? The bridge is fine without him. He designed it, but it doesn't need him to keep going. And you don't need him to get across the bridge. Maybe you believe God is like that. Yes, there must have been a designer some way back, somewhere behind this universe, but he's not involved in this world now, and you don't need him. But no. He is involved. Let's see our verse again. He is involved because our verse tells us God so loved the world. God isn't just a power, a super intelligence somewhere behind the universe. This tells us God is personal and he is loving and he is involved still in this world. He didn't just wind it up like a clock and leave it to tick on its way. He's involved. God so loved the world. But world, well, what does it mean God so loved the world? What is the world that God loved? If you think about the word, you, you probably use it in varieties of ways. You could use it to mean the universe, to mean planet Earth, to mean all humans, to mean humanity in general, to mean society. Well, what does it mean here? The straightforward, sensible approach is to say, what about the person who wrote this verse? His name was John. That's why we call this part of the Bible John's Gospel. His name was John. How did he use the word world? Well, he used the word world a lot, actually. It comes up a lot in his writings. And he nearly always uses it in this way. To mean humans in rebellion against God. He's not talking about planet Earth or the universe. He's talking about humans. Rebellion against God. And he emphasises that part, rebellion against God. Consistently, John used the word world to mean humanity pushing God away and saying, no, we don't want you. In other words, when he says God so loved the world, he's telling us how deep God's love reaches, how bad the people are that God loves. But he is saying more than that. 
Because if you think about it, to say just that, he could have said, God so loved sinners, which would be true. And that would tell you how bad the people are. But he didn't say God so loved sinners. He said God so loved the world. Because there is something else that you learn from John's writings. And that is this. God's love wasn't going to stay there in that tiny part of the Middle East where John lived. And John was amazed by that. God's love was going to reach out to people he'd never heard of and places he'd never been to. It was going to spread to people from every country without exception. And to John, that was just unimaginable. And he was amazed by this. God so loved the world. How deep his love reaches and how wide his love reaches. And so no one here today can say, this isn't for me. No one can say, this isn't for me. Whoever you are, you don't need to worry if you knew how bad I was, then this can't be for me. Or, no, it can't mean me. I'm not that right sort of person. God so loved the world, says there's no one who needs to think like that. Well, maybe you're happy to believe in a God who is love, a God who is a bit like an indulgent grandparent. Do you have or did you have an indulgent grandparent? Buys you ice creams in the summer but never tells you off? Or maybe you're happy with a God like that. But that's not what God is like. So let's move on. That was the starting point, God. Here's the second thing in the verse. Well, it doesn't, I'm not taking the verse in order, but I'm taking it how I think we need to hear it this morning. The second thing, the problem, perishing. There's a problem in this verse, perishing. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate it like this. Imagine you own two clocks. Let's have a picture of two clocks. Let's imagine that you own two clocks. Rather different, aren't they? The first clock that you own is a mass-produced plastic clock made by a machine. The second clock was lovingly crafted by a craftsman who cares about it, who lends it to you and is concerned that you use it properly and it gets treated properly. With the first clock, you don't give any thought to the maker because the maker is a machine. Impersonal, doesn't care, isn't involved. With the second clock, well, you should take notice of what the maker says. You should use the clock in the way the craftsman said. And remember, actually, in the end, it doesn't belong to you. It's on loan. We act, we tend to act like the world and us are the first clock. But actually, we're like the second clock. God so loved the world makes us like the second clock. And that means we must live according to the maker's instructions. Simple, obvious, clear conclusion. We must live according to the maker's instructions. Have you? Have you lived according to the maker's instructions? Well, the answer is a definite no. If you read the maker's instructions, which is this book, the Bible, you'd find you've broken them repeatedly. If you think, well, actually, I think I've done a reasonable job. I've done a fairly good job. No one's perfect, okay, I'll admit I'm not perfect, but I've done a decent job of living according to the maker's instructions. Well, I can tell you, if you have that attitude, it does mean you haven't bothered really to find out what the maker's instructions are, what his requirements are, and what sort of attitude to him does that show? 
Maybe you say, well, I think God will be pleased with me. I've been true to myself. He ought to be pleased with me. Well, what sort of attitude to God does that show? Imagine you took that attitude with applying to a university. You apply to a university and you don't find out their requirements and you don't find out the standards they expect and you rock up to interview and you expect them to accept what you think about yourself. Well, of course, you'd never do that because you have a higher view of them and their course. We so often do it with God. What sort of view do we have of him? And that view of him infects and spoils so many of our thoughts and words and actions. And that means we're guilty and deserve what? That means leading left to ourselves, we're heading to what? What does our verse say? Let, let's, let's see the verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. What does this word perish mean? This is a solemn subject. I find this difficult to talk about. I expect most of you do. So let's just stick with what Jesus said. Jesus described perishing as experiencing God's right anger against all the ways we've treated him as not God. Experiencing. It actually being an experience of God's right anger. Jesus described perishing as being sent away from God forever. To give us an idea of how terrifying that is, Jesus called it fire and darkness, and everlasting destruction. What Jesus said is hard to take, but he put it there as a warning to us. And there's good news in that. There's good news, because there's no point in a warning unless you can do something about escaping the danger. So let's move on thirdly to the solution. We've had the starting point, God, the problem perishing. Thirdly, the solution. What does the verse say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. Let's have a think about who he gave. Let's have a picture on the screen. Children, you're going to know who this is. When it comes, there they are. Right, you know them, don't you, children? But here's a more difficult question. Do you know how long they were married? Any guesses? How long were they married? Or maybe you actually know. No one's going for it. I'm hearing some whispers. Come on, adults. Can any of you tell us? Go on, Sarah. Nearly. Very close. Very close. That's a good one. 73 years. 73 years, wow. Can you imagine how intertwined their lives must have been? Can you imagine how well they knew each other? When Philip died, what was it, about two years ago? A life without him must have been unimaginable to the Queen because she'd had to pass 73 years always with him. Amazing. But 73 years together is nothing compared with this. God is three persons. That's how he could be love, because forever, even before the world began, before there was such a thing as time, however far back you went, 
God the Father and God the Son were together, their lives intertwined, loving each other, enjoying each other, knowing each other, inseparable. The deepest, the strongest, the most passionate love in the whole universe is the love of God the Father and God the Son for each other. And yet, God so loved the world that it was him, his son, that he gave. How did he give him? How did he give his son? Well, the next verse tells us, the very next verse. The very next verse, notice it begins with four, so it's explaining what's just come. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, God gave his son by sending him into this world. And the one who had forever been God became human. And he lived in this world. Remember how John uses the word world? Doesn't just mean he was there physically in planet Earth. It means he mixed with and he experienced the world in rebellion against God. But he didn't rebel, no. He lived the life we should have lived. But gave means more. What's the first word of John 3.16? It's the word you're most likely to miss. What's the first word? For. In other words, it's explaining what went before. So let's have what went before. Verse 14 and 15. The previous verses tell us, just as Moses, oh children, you heard about Moses? Uh, I don't think you got onto the story about the snake and I can't go through it now. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Then verse 16, 4, verse 16 is explaining that one. This is how God gave. Jesus came and he was lifted up. What does it mean he was lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. He was nailed to it. And then it was lifted up into place and he was left to die. Although he'd lived the life that we should have lived, he died the death we deserve to die. Because he was taking our punishment in our place. Or to put it a different way, God gave him to perish. Our problem is perishing. And God gave him to perish. Jesus experienced perishing. There on that cross, he experienced what it means to perish for sin. So we wouldn't. Let's move on. Fourth thing, last thing, the result. What's the result? Let's read the verse again. God so loved the world. For, I must get the first word right. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's the result, eternal life. A relative of mine was struggling with old age. She was really finding it hard. And she said to me, eternal life? What a nightmare that sounds. What a nightmare. Who would want life to go on forever? It's just, it's just hard work. Well, I sympathised, but she had made a a mistake. The mistake was thinking eternal life is just life as we know it, going on and on and on and on. And yes, that would become a nightmare. Later in John's writings, Jesus explained what this eternal life is. He said this, I have come that people might have life and have it to the full. 
Life to the full. Life as God designed and intended it. And later he explained, that means life knowing God. He says, this is eternal life, to know God and the son he sent. The relationship with God mended. And later Jesus said, this is right at the end of the Bible, because that life is with God and all that is bad is incompatible with God, that life, life knowing God, eternal life, is free from all the suffering and sadness and sin that made eternal life sound like a nightmare to my relative. Do you see eternal life? It's not just a quantity, it's also a quality. It's life as God meant it, which means life knowing him, which means life free of all the things that are incompatible with him. There could not be a better offer. There couldn't be a better gift. Who's it for? That's the all-important question. Who's it for? Let's have the verse one last time. Let's see it one last time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes. I don't know what you believe. You might believe there is a God. You might believe Jesus was a real human in history and he did some amazing things. You might even believe he was the son of God. But what is this belief in this verse? What does it mean by believe here? Well, just a little earlier, in fact, in verse 11, Jesus talked about people not accepting his testimony. In fact, he was very blunt and said to the man he was having dinner with, you people don't accept my testimony. Believing is accepting what Jesus said. Accepting what Jesus said about who he is, about how much you need him, that there is a perishing that you must escape, that there's an eternal life that's worth having, and that Jesus is the only one who can get that for you. Believing is accepting what Jesus said. And if you believe that, it it will turn around how you live. But don't miss the simplicity. Please don't miss the simplicity here. Religion can be very complicated, can't it? And it can be very anxiety-inducing. Have I done enough of the right things? Am I good enough? Am I sincere enough? Am I believing exactly the right things? Have I got all of my uh, ideas sorted out? Am I keeping the rules well enough? Ah, so complicated and anxiety-inducing. And in contrast, God simply says, I'm giving my son. He'll do it all. Believe him. Accept what he says. Do you? It's a simple question, isn't it? Please answer it to yourself, honestly. Do you? Will you? Will you believe him? You could now. You don't need to do anything complicated. Don't need to pray a special prayer and let's get all the words right. No, you could simply believe this good news you've heard today. Jesus is the son of God. What he says is true. Your problem of perishing is solved by him. Do you believe it? God clearly promises here in straightforward words, if you believe, you have eternal life.